Hi, my name is Penny Nella and I'm a lawyer and project manager at the Australian Centre for Health Law Research at QUT's Law School. I manage a national online training program called End of Life Law for Clinicians. It's a free training program for health professionals and it explores Australian laws relating to end of life decision making. I also co-author a website called End of Life Law in Australia, and that's a free resource for health professionals and the community about end of life law in each Australian state and territory. Today, I have the great pleasure of talking to Dr. Jim Howe. Jim is a neurologist based in Victoria with over 50 years experience in clinical practice. After graduating from Queen's University Belfast in 1970, Jim completed his training in neurology and geriatrics in Newcastle, Pontine and Leeds. He was a consultant in, in geriatrics and neurology at the Airedale General Hospital in West Yorkshire for 23 years. And during this time, he cared for a young man named Anthony or Tony Bland. Tony was critically injured in the Hillsborough football disaster in Sheffield in 1989, which killed 97 people and injured over 750 others. Tony's situation became a landmark legal case, which clarified the law on withdrawing life-sustaining treatment in both the UK and Australia. We'll hear more about that case from Jim shortly. From 2006 to 2021, Jim worked at the statewide Progressive Neurological Disease Service in Victoria. He has also been a member of the Victorian Voluntary Assisted Dying Review Board in Victoria since its inception in June 2018. Today I'll be talking to Jim about the interaction between medicine and the law at end of life, based on his experiences in the Bland case and with Voluntary Assisted Dying in Victoria. Jim, thanks very much for joining me. So you've had over five decades in practice, which is pretty incredible. And in that time, you've been part of some significant changes to laws that impact end-of-life care. Can you tell me about some of the key changes that you've seen since you began practicing? I suppose as far as law goes, the biggest change is the discussion around end-of-life and withdrawal of treatment is now much more out in the open. Um, I can remember as a medical student and a junior doctor that things were done without much in the way of discussion. You know, we didn't we didn't get anything about ethics uh, at, at medical school, uh, and the law we got was in forensic pathology. It was about death certification, and, uh, you know, rape and murder and uh, horrible things uh, that I could hardly stand. So it's that's that's been a huge change. People are ready to talk about it. People do talk about it. I've been astonished to see the change in Australia around voluntary assisted dying because in the UK, attempts have been made again and again to introduce legislation to allow voluntary assisted dying, and they've all they've failed again and again in the House of Lords. So that that's been a that that's been a astonishing change here in Australia. It's gone so fast now. Every state has got legislation either in action or pending and it looks as if the two territories are going to be able to follow soon. You mentioned the changes that have occurred around people in a PBS and spoke earlier about the case of Tony Bland. He was a patient of yours. Right. Yeah, the, the, the Hillsborough disaster happened. Uh, this It happened at a football stadium in Sheffield. It was the FA Cup semi-final Liverpool versus Sheffield and the fans were 
they couldn't get into the ground on time because of the ridiculous silly old turnstiles and whatnot. And there was a big crush outside and the police let people crowd in to already full pens. Now, Australians can hardly comprehend, I don't think, what those football stadia were like in the UK at that time. The fans were fenced off with high wire fences, but pens at Sheffield were down a dark tunnel with a one in six slope. And the police knew that they were already full because they had TV cameras. And it was a complete and utter mess up by the police in charge on the day, not to shepherd people into empty pens on either side. And that's how all these people were crushed. Mm. Um, my involvement came about because Tony Bland lived in Keithley, the hospital near uh, the, the town near my hospital. And uh, when he uh, was taken off ventilation in intensive care and seen by a friend of mine from Newcastle days, a professor of neurology there, Graham Venables, it was clear that he was already in a fully developed persistent vegetative state at day seven after his injury, crushed chest injury and anoxic brain damage. And so Graham phoned up and uh, asked me to take him over so he'd be near his parents. How long did you care for Tony when he was in that state? Well, that, uh, we looked after him for a bit over three years. The Americans had, uh, the American Academy of Neurology had published guidelines for treatment withdrawal in a vegetative state uh, only the year before. And this had been, this had followed on from the Cruzan case, which had gone to the US Supreme Court and permitted uh, withdrawal of treatment. And so I thought, you know, after a few months when it was clear there was no change in Tony and his family were asking, well, there's no change. You said there might not be any. What are we going to do now? And so on and so on. I told them about the American guidelines and they agreed with me that it would be a good idea to withdraw treatment and let Tony die because they were sure that's what he would have wanted. Going back to, to Tony, he was in a PBS and his family believed that that wasn't the state he would want to live yes. in. That's what correct. other factors did you and your colleagues take into account when you were thinking about Tony's treatment and when you were arriving at this decision that he should no longer exist in this way? Well, he was having a full-on go at rehabilitation, physio, OT, speech pathology. The nurses were looking after him beautifully. We were trying to prevent spasticity. We put him in our therapy pool. His dad got in with him. Um, you know, every effort was being made, but there was absolutely no change at all. No sign of awareness, no sign of any communication. Uh, he was unable to swallow, so he had to be tube fed. And there he lay in uh unconscious but with eyes open and having sleeping and waking cycles and fully developed um, post-coma unresponsiveness as Australia has decided to call it what was then called persistent vegetative state and it was perfectly clear that was the situation and um, I had a colleague a neurology colleague who came to visit and look at him agree with me uh, that that was the case uh, then a colleague from a, you know from a unit in another town so we we thought well we can do what they did in America and we can withdraw treatment. We had no idea that it had never been tested in the UK or that there would be objections to it or that a case might have to be brought or, you know, go to court, anything like that. We were completely innocent, totally innocent in the matter. Once that decision obviously sounds like there was unanimous medical opinion that prolonging treatment wasn't going to be beneficial for Tony, there was no chance of his status changing. 
once that thought around withdrawing treatment and, and decision was made, what, what did you do after that? Well, I after I, I discussed it with the, um, you know, with the senior hospital administration and um, then we decided, it was decided that I would write a letter to the coroner who was going to be, you know, who is lining up the inquests on the um, 94 people who had already died and just say that we are going to do this and, uh, you know, this will be another case to add to your list. And I was astonished to receive a letter almost by return of post in which he said that uh, he, he had no jurisdiction over the living. Um, he felt that I would I was liable to a charge of murder. And he had sent, he sent a copy of this letter to the West Midlands Police, who sent Detective Inspector Round from Keithley Police Station to interview me at work and give me a warning that, yeah, they would have to come around and charge me with murder if we withdrew treatment. Mr. and Mrs. Bland were very angry because of what was going on with the Hillsborough, the accusations that the fans had all been drunk when they weren't and so on. They just shot up shop and said, well, we're not going to, we can't do anything now. Let's just plug on for a while. And after three years of him being like that, he developed a fistula from his, uh, because of his bladder catheter and needed um, surgery and treatment. And that was what enabled me to convince the Blands that we should take the case to court. This case became a seminal legal case because, as you mentioned, the UK courts had previously had to consider this issue. And there was a lot of uncertainty about whether it was lawful for you to stop artificial hydration and nutrition. And obviously stopping that would mean that, that Tony would die. So the, the matter, I understand, progressed through a number of courts and ultimately the Family Division of the High Court made the orders sought by the hospital. However, that was appealed and then it was later, the case went to the House of Lords, which made a final judgment. Yeah. One of the most significant findings for both doctors and lawyers is that a doctor has no duty to provide life-sustaining treatment if it's of no benefit to the patient. And I'm talking about here treatment that is non-beneficial, but it's also sometimes called inappropriate or futile treatment. Yeah. So in Tony's case, the court found that continuing to provide treatment was not in his best interest. There was no therapeutic purpose and there was no prospect of improvement. And so you were able to lawfully withdraw it. So, yeah, that they, they decided that that treatment that was of no benefit to someone who, you know, could be withdrawn. And in a way, that's not new. We draw treatment that's of no benefit. If if you're resuscitating somebody and their heart doesn't restop, will you stop resuscitating them? It's just the same thing. It's just more dramatic. You know, if chemotherapy is not working, then you stop chemotherapy. None of that was new. It was just new because of someone being in a persistent vegetative state, being able to keep them alive for years. The longest recorded survival was 37 years. That was a child that grew to be an adult while never regaining consciousness. And because it was food and fluid, so there was all the, all the emotional flag-waving about starving people to death and so on. So, Jim, obviously Tony's situation significantly shaped the law in the UK, but also in Australia, because this decision was adopted subsequently by a number of Australian courts. Though these decisions made in practice every day, 
are there particular challenges that health professionals still encounter when they're faced with these situations, about whether to start or, or to continue treatment? It's much more common in the non, you know, in, in where we're not talking about brain injury. It's much more common in the world of oncology for some people to want more chemotherapy or more experimental therapy or for families to want doctors to keep on treating their elderly mother or elderly father even though the doctors think that there's absolutely no point in doing so because the treatment isn't going to work so i had spent a lot more time discussing things with families who want us to carry on treating when we don't uh, you know when we don't think it's going to do any good that's still that's still there that's still going on uh, there's plenty of that in those situations what advice can you give health professionals about how they can become i guess more comfortable with recognizing that treatment shouldn't continue and conveying that to patients and, and their families I, I can't tell the oncologist how to do their job or the renal specialist or whatever but i mean the, the important thing about talking to the families I think is to not be afraid to put it out there in the gentlest possible way and to avoid using the word futile at any time because for family members from you know members of the public the word futile conjures up the idea that their loved one is futile their life is futile whereas we're talking about futile treatment so i would strongly advise never ever uttering the word futile but talking about the treatment isn't working and we don't think the treatment is going to work and I think we should uh, consider uh, you know a, a trial of treatment that will last till so and so or you know couching things in those terms or saying to people look the, the treatment we've done so far doesn't seem to be working and maybe there's there's one more thing we might try but I think that's very 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 unlikely to help and and uh, you know most people wouldn't consider it or whatever. So listening, listening to what they have to say before you start talking is absolutely crucial. Um, and checking that they've understood what you've said is absolutely crucial. But that's, that's good practice in communication skills. Um, and it applies to everything we do, not just end-of-life discussions. That's great advice, Jim. And I guess discussions around death and dying are very difficult, as we all know, and, and many clinicians still struggle to, to talk about these topics. Do you think that since you started in practice, you, your colleagues um, and, and young doctors coming through, do you think they're becoming a bit better at talking oh, about I, death and dying? Yes, there's been, a, there's been a huge change in that area. When I was a medical student and a junior doctor, they didn't tell people with we didn't tell people with cancer that they were dying. You might tell their wife or the husband, and it wasn't until a wonderful psychiatrist in England called John Hinton published a book uh, where he he'd actually gone around interviewing people who were dying who'd been identified to him uh, that you know they were dying of cancer or whatever. And he just sat down quietly with them and listened to what they had to say. And lo and behold, he found that people who were dying knew perfectly well that they were dying. And they would say things to him like, um, well, I know that I'm dying and I can see that Dr. X doesn't want to talk about it. So I don't bother to talk to him about it. And I haven't said anything to my wife because I don't want to upset her. And meanwhile, the wife had said to him, well, 
I know Jim's dying. Um, I don't like to talk to him about it because I don't want to upset him. You know, so this uh, that book was an absolute, I it was a revelation. I remember buying my Penguin paperback copy and, and reading it. And it completely changed the way people in the UK, uh, doctors in the UK, more sensitive doctors anyway, began to, to think about that. So yes, we're. I think we're much better about talking about that, and and there's training programs about, you know, in communication skills now. Now all medical students do communication skills training. Uh, there was no such thing when I was a student. You saw people who were fantastic at it, and you saw people who were terrible at it, and you said to yourself, "Well, I don't want ever to be like that." So that's an area where there's been a, the most astonishing change in in, in my lifetime. Jim, one of the areas with the most significant legal change in terms of medical practice has been voluntary assisted dying in Australia. You're a member of the VAD Review Board in Victoria. You've been closely involved with VAD since it uh, first started operating in Victoria in 2019. There's still diverse views. I understand among clinicians, but overwhelmingly the, the polls indicate that VAD is supported by the Australian public. What That's are right. some of the challenges that you've observed with the voluntary assisted dying laws since it started operating in Victoria in 2019? And how do you think those challenges can be addressed? I th- what, what we've seen at the board, um, well, I, should, I should say the board reviews all the cases after the event, and we encourage feedback from the contact persons and from the doctors who are involved. And most of them give it. Um, some people send us and don't just answer the, the 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 phone call about asking for feedback. They actually write us letters and, and send in many essays about it. So I think that the the things that the things that have become clear are first of all, a lot of people who get involved in the in it do so rather late in the course of their illness because they don't know about it and despite all the seeming publicity about it it's not you know it's not been advertised <laughs> a lot of people don't seem to know about it and of course the law in victoria says that doctors are not allowed to mention it so that's that's one thing people not knowing about it even after what seems to me to have been a lot of publicity um and the other one is jeffrey blaney's old chestnut the tyranny of distance so there are patients with uh, progressive neurological disease who are just not able to get to Melbourne to see a neurologist. There are now neurologists in Geelong and Ballarat, or maybe it's Bendigo, I'm not sure. And there's neurologists in Albury-Wodonga. But the rest of us are in Melbourne. And there was a person recently who did a seven-hour car journey to get to see a neurologist for an opinion on um, prognosis and, and eligibility for voluntary assisted dying so that that telehealth has to be sorted out it's it's ridiculous that um doctors could face prosecution under the federal law about aiding and abetting suicide by using a carriage service by talking to someone about voluntary assisted dying i just what can you say so the people the people who live far away from from big centers of population are seriously disadvantaged there are still doctors who don't wish to join in and they, some of them have religious reasons and 
and I've met doctors who have no religious affiliation, no religious, um, don't take part in any religion who feel that it's not something that they should do. It's not part of what they were trained and what they want to do. And, uh, you know, that's fine. They just don't have to get in the way. But I'm afraid that one of the big things that came up in all the discussion and in the, you know, in, is written into the law was about making sure that people are not going to, not being coerced into, into having, well, we've actually seen more anti-coercion that, and no evidence of coercion anywhere. So people who've been told that, no, you shouldn't do this, um, sometimes are members of their family, sometimes by health professionals uh, and, and certain health professionals who have been obstructive um, to people who are um, going down the, the VAD pathway. And that's, I think that's, it's against the law, isn't it? <laughs> Obstructing it. So those are the, those are sort of the, those are the big themes that we've seen. What we've, the other thing we've had, of course, is overwhelmingly the feedback is that this is what, this is what my Jimmy wanted. And he was very glad to get it. And, and um, it was, a, we had a wonderful um, send off. And he was sitting on the veranda looking at the trees in his garden bar. You know, like we, uh, story after story of of um, people writing in saying, you know, it's so different to when my mother died, and uh, you know, it's those things have been truly, truly heartwarming to read. Do you think that since the inception of the laws in Victoria and the commencement of the operation of the scheme, that health professionals in Victoria have become a little more comfortable with the idea of VAT as a, an end-of-life option in addition to palliative care and other options? Yes, I think they have. Um, I mean, there are people. there are people who don't want to be involved, as I said, and people who are opposed to the law still being in the statute book. But I think, no, it's it's accepted that that's what people want by, you know, by a lot more doctors. The vast majority of the people who've applied for voluntary assisted dying and gone through the pathway in Victoria have been receiving palliative care from a local palliative care service. We were expecting that we would see lots of people who were had no engagement with palliative care, but that's not true. Um, the majority of people are engaged with palliative care and they go down the, they, they go on the VAD pathway. Jim, I'll just ask you about the Victorian legislation places restrictions on doctors around whether or not they can initiate a conversation about voluntary assisted dying with a patient. And we understand anecdotally that that has encroached upon access to, to VAD by some patients. Do you think that that's something that will change in the future? I think that that ought to change. Whether it will be changed, whether the legislation will be amended or not, I can't say. We'll have to, we'll have to see what Parliament says when the, um, when the report, on, when, when our five-year report on the operation of the Act um, is presented to Parliament. And Jim, one final question. So we've heard today about some of your experiences where the law and medicine have intersected, so particularly around provision of treatment or stopping treatment where it's not beneficial for the person and also around voluntary assisted dying. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's important for health professionals to know the law at end of life? And is there anything that you wish that you had known about the law when you started out in your practice? <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
I knew nothing about the law except for, for in, what we did in forensic pathology when I started out as a, you know, when I started as a as a junior doctor in the city hospital in Belfast. Um, I knew how to write a death certificate. And that was it as far as the law went. Um, as far as law at the end of life goes, I, again and again, I've heard people saying things that are are, are complete nonsense when they're talking about law at the end of life. And one of one of the tasks we have in looking after people with motor neuron disease is if the people who are on non-invasive ventilation decide that they want to stop having non-invasive ventilation. Well, if they just stopped having their non-invasive ventilation, they would have a very terrible and unpleasant death, suffocating. And so we put them to sleep and then take them off the ventilation and they die uh, unconscious and not ventilating and even up to two years ago i had uh, staff in a residential home thinking that this was illegal and was you know uh, I, mean, I couldn't believe i couldn't believe it when i had to you know sit down and and explain patiently to them that it was not illegal it's perfectly satisfactory for a adult to uh, refuse any medical treatment uh, so there's still doctors need to know that stuff and there's there's quite a lot of fiddly stuff that you need to know about and unfortunately for australia it's different in different states and territories thanks jim very much for your time today and for sharing with us your insights around land and also around voluntary assisted dying well thank you penny and uh, also to remember a um, truly astonishing time in my life. If you're interested in learning more about the law at End of Life, please visit our website, End of Life Law in Australia at QUT. From there, you can also access our free online training program for health professionals, End of Life Law for clinicians. There are 13 online training modules and CPD points are available.